Very gracious. Um, okay, I have a question for you to start today. Someone ever done something for you that marked your life so strongly that you felt forever connected to them? Usually it's like an act of kindness. A, mo a moment that felt so memorable, so impactful, so formative that you simply can't forget it. And even the place where it happened becomes significant. It causes you to live different. A few years ago, I read a story about something like that. In 2010, an elderly German man named Heinrich Steinmeier made headlines around the world because he left nearly 400,000 euros to a small Scottish village called Comrie. Steinmeier had been a 19-year-old SS soldier for the Nazis in the Second World War. Steinmeier served as this elite combat soldier among the German regular army. The SS were known as fanatical fighters. And he had been captured by the Allied forces and kept as a prisoner of war in a prisoner's camp near Comrie from September 1943 until June of 1944 which makes what he did so interesting. Why would a member of Hitler's SS and a POW leave so much money behind to the people who held him captive? It's not Stockholm Syndrome or anything like that. Like it's, this is many years later. So why would he do that? Well, he was interviewed because what he did made headlines, and he explained, the Scots saved my life three times. The Scottish people showed me mercy. The first time they saved his life was shortly after he was captured. He was captured in Normandy, and he was taken um, to uh, the banks of the Seine, the Seine River, and told to wait for a boat that would take them across. But as they were waiting, he says, a group of elderly French women carrying butcher knives and ropes, approached him and the friend that had, that had been captured with him. And the SS soldiers, they wore a different kind of uniform that made them stand out wherever they went. So they saw him, and they were spitting at him and his friend and trying to kill them because they were SS soldiers. But the Scottish soldiers drove these elderly women away. It's actually kind of a comical picture, isn't it? That they, they, they knew what these men stood for what he stood for and what he did. And they wanted to repay him for what he'd done. And it was the Scottish soldiers who drove them off repeatedly until the boat came. Then once they got on the boat with all these other POWs, they had them kind of divided. On one side were the guards and on the other side were the POWs. But there also happened to be um, some Polish men in the boat as well, who hated Germans, especially as a soldiers. And they carried pocket knives with them and were threatening to um, cut their throat. Steinmeier was very uncomfortable, and the Scottish guards started to realize what was happening when they asked them, are they threatening you? And they said, yeah. So they actually brought them over onto their side and, and protected them on the boat. But then once they landed and got on the other side in the UK, they had all these tents set up before they would bring them to the camps. And in the tents that they set up, the Polish guys were still there. They didn't really separate them. And again, they started threatening to take their lives, to kill them. And so again, the guards 
intervened and saved Steinmeier and his friend and brought them into the home they were staying in. Steinmeier talks about how this was one of the, uh, the first times he got to try some English tea that they have over there. And then he says this, you never forget someone who saves your life so many times. I was lucky to be captured by the Scots. Some British soldiers believed all SS had to be killed. The SS were hated because of their fanatical commitment to Hitler and his ideals, to create this pure nation by exterminating Jews, people with cognitive disabilities, and anyone who went against their vision for the Nazi empire. The SS were the ones who were running the concentration camps. And yet at this uh, POW camp in Comrie, the locals were kind to him. And once he was released, he was actually able to work on a local farm, and people continued to show him mercy. Mercy marked Heinrich Steinmeier's life. And that's what led him to leave pretty much all of his wealth to this small town. And he actually uh, left it to, uh, uh, to this town so that they could renovate and fix up their town as needed. And Jesus comes to call us to a life of mercy. And it has the power to transform us and others. And that's what we're going to see in the passage that we look at this morning in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. And this is what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at, ta uh, at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father in heaven, we ask that we would know you today as merciful that you are good, righteous, holy, but you are also merciful. Allow us to hear from you and embrace this truth we ask in your son's name. Amen. Uh, the big idea this morning is that the call to be a disciple of Jesus is a call to live in his mercy, to build your life on his mercy to dwell in his mercy, and to allow his mercy to pour out of your life onto others. Build your life on his mercy, dwell in his mercy, and allow his mercy to pour out of your life onto others. In the first century, Palestine area, few people were more despised than tax collectors. Tax collectors had betrayed their own people to tax them on behalf of the colonial power, the Roman Empire. And this was this national betrayal, but also a religious betrayal. And because of this, Matthew would have been interacting and coming into contact with Gentiles. He wasn't just staying with his own people. In essence, these people, tax collectors, had rejected their national and religious identity by siding with the enemy for their own benefit. They would tax people what the empire required, but they'd also tax them extra, which was for themselves. This was how the system was set up, and this is how they got wealthy. 
They were wealthy business people in their city, but they were also known as selfish and greedy turncoats because of their betrayal of God. Tax collectors couldn't enter into the, uh, the synagogue. They were excluded from the people of God, and they were lumped in with thieves and murderers. Few people would have been more hated than Matthew, the tax collector. And that's what makes what Jesus does so striking, because he walks to him and says, follow me. Matthew doesn't merit an invitation, but Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, follow me. See, the words of Jesus have the power to pull us from all the things that we once thought were precious. There's something about the words of Jesus that speak to Matthew and pull him out of his life and into a new place. Matthew is so far from that. And that's why Jesus' call reveals something about the depths of God's forgiveness. See, the call of Jesus is full of mercy. It drips with mercy. Jesus calling Matthew to follow him is the same invitation that he gave to Peter, to Andrew, to John, James, while they were in their boats. There's a promise that Jesus makes to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of people, Jesus says. You'll be transformed. There's this promise he's making to anyone who will follow him. That when you begin to trust Jesus and follow him, you will change. You can't remain the same when you follow him. And the promise is that as you come into contact with him and learn from him, your desires will begin to change and align with his desires. Your, your character will begin to align with his character. And the things you do and say will begin to reflect the things that Jesus says and does. It's amazing that Jesus would call someone like Matthew, who's so despised, to follow him. But it's also amazing that Matthew, this shrewd tax collector, would leave it all behind to follow Jesus. So what draws Matthew to do that? to leave his income, his way of living, all the way that he's made wealth, what would cause him to do that? Matthew feels the mercy of God when Jesus calls him. He has heard Jesus' teaching. He's heard about the miracles. He's heard about people talking about this guy, Jesus, in the town. But now Matthew's actually encountered the merciful one that everyone cannot stop talking about. And he's looking directly at him. And he is saying to him, I want you to be with me. I want you to follow me. I want you to keep company with me. I want you to make your life about me and the kingdom that I have come to establish. This is mercy. Mercy changes Matthew's life. And what is uh, mercy? Well, the word mercy in our passage refers to this, uh, a fundamental tender-hearted kindness toward another. It's this fundamental orientation towards the well-being of the other. Jesus references an Old Testament minor prophet, Hosea, when he says, I go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that word in Hebrew, when you go to Hosea 6, verse 6, is hesed in Hebrew. There's no English word that fully captures this word, the meaning of it. Hesed refers to steadfast love, to its loyalty, this faithfulness, this compassionate kindness, this orientation towards the other. And this is what God desires. I desire mercy. Put another way, I take delight in giving mercy and in you being merciful to others. 
But the presence of evil and human sin in the world makes it so that God's mercy is primarily expressed in, to us in two ways. And I'm drawing this next little bit from Daryl Johnson who highlights how mercy is, in a negative sense, not giving someone what they deserve. But in a positive sense, mercy is giving someone what they don't deserve. See, sin has twisted and distorted God's good creation. Evil destroys it, but mercy interrupts this cycle of destruction and it begins to restore it. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. That's Steinmeier. This SS soldier, part of the Nazis' most fanatical, fanatical soldier branch, the things they do and did were evil. You could say what they did deserved death. And so the, the French grandmothers, the Polish soldiers, they're ready to kill him. The Scots did not give him what he deserved. That's why he said you never forget someone who saves your life so many times. And this is exactly what the gospel says. That because of Jesus, God the judge does not give us what we deserve. God is holy, and holiness by its nature can't stand in the presence of what is unholy, sin. By his nature, God seeks to consume sin in the fire of purity. Therefore, the result of sin, of choosing life apart from God, it, it, it's this, it leads to death. It rejects God and the purpose that he created you for. And the appropriate response and just response to sin and its effects in our world would be to remove it, to consume it. And yet that's not what God does, at least not in the way we expect. Daryl Johnson will explain, at the cross, the Holy One expressed holy indignation against sin, but it expressed it on himself. In Jesus, the Holy One became one of us, but not only one of us, he became us. He not only became human, he became the representative human. Mercy. God himself took himself upon himself our sin, and then God himself put on upon him the awful judgment we deserve. The holy God does not give me what I deserve. He does not give you what you deserve. He gives himself what we deserve. That's mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. We stand before God, and he doesn't give us what we deserve. But in a positive sense, mercy also gives you what you don't deserve. It extends compassion. It offers forgiveness to you, the guilty. That's what Matthew receives. Jesus gives Matthew what he doesn't deserve. He's invited to be a disciple of the Messiah, to be with him, to become like him over his life, to begin to do the things he does. Mercy is why Jesus is reclined at this table with Matthew and many other tax collectors and sinners. Mercy is why Jesus brought his disciples to keep company with them. This is what Jesus does. Jesus will reference the same passage again in Matthew 13. Mercy is central to who Jesus is and what he is about. He feels compassion and it leads him to act in a way that forgives us and delivers us. This is why in Ephesians 2, Paul will talk about how God being rich in mercy, rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that we've been saved. 
Mercy is about an action that is a generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage, says Glenn Stassen. But there's something more that I've been thinking about when it comes to mercy and who God is. See, God is triune. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons who exist in perfect love, unity, mercy. And before the creation of all things, cosmos, the world, you and I, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwelled together full of mercy for one another, full of this tender-hearted kindness. But now God the Son comes to us and says, come and enter into the sphere of mercy that I have inhabited with my Father and the Spirit since before the creation of all things. When Jesus says, follow me, he says, I want you to experience what I have always known, what I've always inhabited. And if you leave here this morning, one thing we need to know is that Jesus is merciful and that he calls you to follow him, to enter into that, to dwell in the presence of the merciful one. His call is to learn to regularly receive his mercy and then to regularly give mercy to others. See, the thing is, if you're going to follow Jesus, eventually you will have to express mercy to other people, to the outsiders, to outcasts, to your neighbors, to the other. And one of the reasons why we need to know that is because it's all too easy for us to become like the Pharisees in this story. They've missed it. They should have been the guys anticipating and being ready for the coming of the Messiah. They're the Bible teachers. And instead, they're busy resisting Jesus. They judge Jesus rather than rejoice when he heals the paralyzed man in the passage right before this. They judge Jesus rather than celebrate Matthew's repentance. They're blind to the true identity of Jesus. They're blind to their own need for him. And so they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And it's so easy for us to look at the Pharisees and be like, man, look at those guys. Like, they just missed it. What are they doing? I can't believe they missed it that bad. How can they not have any ounce of mercy? But if there's a group of people who have the easiest time falling into what the Pharisees do, it would be those of us on the inside already. The Pharisees looked down on the tax collectors and sinners because their sin was visible to others. It was external. But their sin was internal. They carried the exact same sickness that has plagued all of humanity, just sin. It's humanity's defining illness. The Pharisees, though, they lived as if they were healthy, as if they didn't sin. They were immaculate and observing all of these different commands, but they were entirely lacking in mercy. They lack, their lack of rejoicing in the mercy that Jesus demonstrates revealed the depth of their sickness. They had grown blind to their desperate need for mercy. They were sick with the same illness, just in denial about how bad it really was. And that's us too. Many of us live as if we are healthy before God, like we have no need for him, the great physician. And what do you mean by that, you might wonder? Let me offer just three signs that we're sick like the Pharisees. One, we don't confess our sin daily, let alone weekly. 
All of us sin. All of us have sinned. All of us will sin. All of us are prone to wandering, prone to sinning. If we never confess our sin, something is wrong. If you identify as a follower of Jesus, something's wrong if you're not confessing your sin. Do you genuinely believe that you can go a day without sinning? Origen once wrote, While we live, there is not a single hour or day or night when we are not a debtor. And for this reason, Christians in, in the, uh, as, as early as the 5th century have been praying what's often called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's not having this negative view of yourself. It's actually recognizing our need for mercy, for God's grace to sustain us, for him to forgive us. We need his mercy daily. It's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he includes and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He understands that for us. Our need to come to God and ask for forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness and the strength to forgive others, because we will get it wrong. But it's so easy for us to live our lives and never do that. And we're deceiving ourselves if we live like that. Second sign is that we don't forgive others. Forgiveness always entails suffering. Someone has to take the bill. Bitterness and anger instead of sadness might make you feel like you're in control, but it only in the short term. Bitterness will not set you free. It will not lead you to healing. And a refusal to forgive is different than the desire to forgive, but a struggle to live in that place completely. Do you know what I mean? One is saying there's, it's not even on the table. Forgiveness is not an option for this person. And the other one is saying, I want to forgive, but I find it so difficult. And sometimes I, I, I know I've forgiven, and then I, I feel like it just comes back into my memory what happened. And I have to work through that once again. That's a totally different thing. I'm talking about a posture here. One that says it's not on the table. The other says it is on the table. I'm working through it, and I, in my heart I have. And the enemy just keeps wanting to bring it back up as if I, I need to hold them hostage for what they did. See, Jesus is the king who shows us mercy by forgiving. And a necessary consequence of his forgiveness of our sins is that we extend mercy and forgiveness to others. It's not a condition, but it is a consequence. We can come to him and receive his forgiveness. But one of the things he expects of us is that we would actually demonstrate that same mercy to others. And this isn't to say that you've got to act like, noth like uh, nothing ever happened. You've got to sweep it under the rug when something has hurt you. Ignore it. That's not what we're saying at all. You acknowledge what's happened. Name it. You work through that, though. And part of that working through it is forgiveness. A third sign that we're sick like the Pharisees is we don't delight in his mercy. The reason you stop delighting in mercy is because you've stopped believing that apart from the mercies of God, you can do nothing. You stop believing that you were made for him to be in relationship with him and that sin destroys your relationship with him. Your heart is calloused and your, hearts are your eyes are blind. So when others are receiving the mercy of God, it doesn't even move you. 
Psalm 32, the very first two verses of it say, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Not deceiving yourself. You're honest about your sin. You recognize its presence in your life, and you reject it, and you confess it, and you receive the forgiveness of God. And then you can rejoice in that gift. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we begin to do this in our lives? Well, just let me offer three things. And um, In one sense, you might be like, that's so simple. And in another sense, that's often how truth works. It can be very simple, and yet it's really hard to live in. First, build your life on Jesus' mercy. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you what you don't deserve. And Jesus says, I have come for sinners. People, I have come for people who are not free from sin. People who have been devoted to sin. People who are stained with sin. Follow me, says Jesus. This is an act of mercy itself. And when you do, you become someone who is set free from sin and being transformed into a new person. One who over a lifetime begins to look like the one they're following. The words of Jesus have power to pull us from all the things that we once thought were precious. Believe that he's actually inviting you to step into his sphere of mercy. That when he invites you, there's no condemnation because your life is in him. That in Jesus, you're fully known and accepted and loved. And that you can live into that reality. Whatever sin he may highlight in your life, as you follow him, it's being done so that he can actually heal and restore you. Sometimes we feel this conviction. We start to become aware that something's off in our life, something that we're doing, and we hide from it because we feel shame. But when the Spirit comes, conviction is different than shame. When the Spirit comes and convicts, it's meant to actually have us turn around and receive the grace and restoration of God so that we could live the way he intended, in, in true freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, we're told in Galatians. You are safe with him. So even when you begin to experience that and recognize, and sometimes he uses other people, sometimes he uses my kids to do that in my life, it's actually for my good, even though it's so uncomfortable. Second, learn to dwell in the mercy of Jesus Christ. There's a few different passages I highlight there that highlight the mercy of God, how, how the richness of God's mercy revealed to us in Jesus. And I've also included uh, just a note about the, a prayer of examine, and uh, we'll go through that in just a bit. But I think that that prayer can be so helpful in, in helping us recognize God's mercy in the tiny things of life. And third... Join Jesus in extending mercy to others. And this can be as simple as answering the question, like, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to make room for in my life? One of the things that's uh, fascinating about both of the times Jesus calls the disciples so far in Matthew's gospel, here with Matthew the tax collector and then with the, the fisherman, 
is that they are doing their jobs. These secular jobs are not like doing something religious. They're just doing their jobs, but it's in the workplace that they receive the call of Jesus to come and follow him. Jesus called a businessman who was known for being a cheat to follow him, and the man got up and left his old life. What if Jesus did this again in our day? That's a prayer for us, that Jesus would call wealthy business people. Jesus would call people who are considered cheats, greedy cheats, to himself. How can we make room in our lives, in our home, in our jobs, in our prayers for those who are universally hated, mistrusted? How can you show these people mercy that you come across? Who are people that if you were seen spending time with uh, them, your friends or your boss or your family might say, why are you spending time with them? These are usually good indications of where we can direct our energy, where we can extend mercy. Because mercy often will lead to people misunderstanding you. That's why Jesus is constantly being misunderstood and, ne- and all these negative titles are being attributed to him because of the company he keeps. I desire mercy, says Jesus. Now imagine with me a world where people would live like this, where individuals would live like this, communities would live like this, where they built their lives on Jesus' mercy, where they learned to dwell in it and joined him in extending it to others. Jesus is not about people burning the right sacrifices. He is about creating a people who have embraced his mercy and then freely give it away. Sin, cycles of sin would be broken in families, in communities. Evil would be interrupted and undone in places around the world. We know the effects of the mercy of God. We don't even have to look further than the, the cross of Christ to see what happens when mercy is demonstrated, and that's the greatest picture of it. But think with me even farther. When you and I come face to face with Jesus on the other side. What would it be like to hear Jesus say to you, you did exactly what I wanted you to do with your life? Wouldn't that be amazing? What if he says, wasn't it amazing that you did exactly the things I wanted you to do? Didn't you feel my healing power break into the world when you showed mercy? Couldn't you sense I was leading you in that moment to forgive? Wasn't it incredible when you gave them that thing that they needed but in no way deserved? I know it felt like death when you forgave them, but when you released them, something changed in the unseen realm. The enemy couldn't accuse you the same way anymore. And it gave me a great pleasure to see you do that. When you showed mercy and forgiveness, you showed them what I am like. And I loved that. That's what I want to hear when I come face to face with Jesus. I don't want to find out that at the end of my life, when I stand before him, that he he says in great sadness, I wish you had learned to understand what mercy means that you knew all of these things in the Bible, but you didn't get mercy. 
and it grieved me. I think that's why Jesus is okay with being misunderstood all the time. Because mercy is central to who he is, and it will often lead to that misunderstanding. But he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. I take great pleasure when you demonstrate it, when you receive it, when you acknowledge your need for it, but then when you extend it to others, you get to show others what I am like in this world. A world that I created, a world that was meant to know me. So 